You've got your license and you're ready to fly. You've done all your training in a Cessna 172RG and it's time to build some hours. A mate owns a Cessna 210 and is offering it for you dirt cheap. Can you fly it? You need some night circuits to get current again. You do some, but man, they are really, really average. Are you current? Are you competent? In today's episode, I'll discuss the general competency rule from the CASR 61.385 and how to apply it to your daily flying and answer these questions and more. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everybody, welcome to episode 5 of Flight Training Australia, the podcast about training in Australia and Australian regulations. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you again for joining me. For those who don't know me, I'm a flight instructor, flight examiner and head of operations based out of Darwin in the Northern Territory. And that's in the north of Australia for my overseas listeners, thank you for tuning in. So the word competency, a noun meaning the ability to do something successfully or efficiently. It's a term that's been banded around for a while in aviation training and the aviation industry. But it's only recently, in the last six, seven years or so, since Part 61 came into the Australian regulations, that it's truly been defined and laid out as to what it means and what needs to be done in order to meet the requirement. Now, so often... I ask a student uh, or on a flight test or just during training what they can and can't do and I always get an answer of technically yes. But technically doesn't quite cover it. 61.385 is a regulation just like every other regulation pertinent to flight training, flight licensing, flight ratings, uh, endorsements, flight activities, the whole lot. If you look at the way Part 61 is structured, 61.385 is right there before everything else. And essentially it's been designed to be read and applied to everything thereafter. So what we're going to do today is have a look at 61.385 for those of you that don't know it and how to apply it to your daily flying routine or weekly or yearly. Because as you'll find out, it applies to everybody. So if you have a copy of your CASRs, you can open up to Volume 2, which is where Part 61 is, and have a look for 61.385. But you'll find it there. It says Limitations on Exercise of Privileges of Pilots Licenses, General Competency Requirement. If you get a new job, I will often be utilised or an instructor or examiner will be often utilised to do a proficiency check for somebody. And when they say proficiency check or a prof check, this is what they're referring to. So let's have a look at it. The holder of a pilot licence is authorised to exercise the privileges of the licence in an aircraft only if the holder is competent in operating the aircraft to the standards mentioned in the Part 61 Manual of Standards for the class or type to which the aircraft belongs, including in all of the following areas. All right, so even now, half of you are probably lost and are saying, come again. So what it's saying is the holder of a pilot's licence 
can do all the things that they're licensed to do as long as they meet the following conditions. And that is, A, being competent in operating the aircraft's navigation and operating systems. B, conducting all normal, abnormal and emergency flight procedures for the aircraft. C, applying operating limitations. D, weight and balance requirements. And E, applying aircraft performance data, including takeoff and landing performance data for the aircraft. All right, so let's just have a little look at that and see what that all means to begin with. So A, operating the aircraft's navigation and operating systems. Now, this one's a little little bit uh, ambiguous in ways and interpreted different ways. I can tell you that now from flight schools to examiners to CASA. What it's saying is if I had to operate an aircraft, essentially regardless of my licence ratings or abilities, I should be competent in operating all navigation equipment and operating systems in that aeroplane. So if it's got a manual gear extension system or electrical gear system, I need to know how they all work, whether it works normally or in the emergency procedure. I need to know the fuel system, how to switch tanks. I need to know how to work the fitted GPS or avionics navigation equipment that's in it. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting because it might have an ILS or a VOR and you're not trained to use that equipment. In my view, part A is operating the aircraft's navigation operating systems as per the holder's qualifications. And that's what I believe that first section reads as. The holder of a pilot's licence is authorised to exercise the privileges of the licence based on the aircraft's operating aircraft navigation and operating systems. So you only need to know what your licence or should be able to use at your your licence level or rating. Conducting all normal abnormal and emergency flight procedures for the aircraft. So you should know all the normal operating parameters, max angle climb, max rate, cruise climb, power settings, flap limits, and this applies to part C, applying operational limits. When can you put the flap down? What's your first stage of flaps limit? What's your full flap limit? When can you put the gear down? Can you run a fuel tank dry before you switch? Is there a fuel imbalance limit? All sorts of stuff like that. Back to B, abnormal and emergency flight procedures as well. So partial failures, screen failures, engine failures, electrical failures, fires, pressurization issues, everything to do with that aircraft, essentially anything in the emergency and abnormal checklists you should be able to uh, follow and be competent in. Weight and balance requirements goes without saying. How can you operate an aircraft if you're going to go and operate it out of weight unknowingly? You need to know the weight limitations of the aircraft. Is it forward of the limit or after the limit? And whereabouts you're going to be uh, loading your passengers, your freight, your fuel, how much does it burn, where's the zero fuel weight, etc. And then finally, applying the aircraft performance data, including takeoff and landing data. This is one I find 
probably the most commonly misunderstood. And the takeoff and landing safety factors, 15% under 2,000 kilos, above 2,000 kilos, it has a linear increase up to 3,500 kilos for takeoff and so on. This is where this comes in. I've had people operating aircraft above 2,000 kilos applying 15% safety factor, thinking they're meeting the regulations, and they are not. So it would be fair to say that they are not competent in operating that aircraft in all manner of aspects as far as this regulation goes. So most of that isn't that difficult to follow and understand. It really just comes down to putting in some time and effort to familiarise yourself some way, shape or form. So let's have a look at that. Just to finish, though, before we get on to that, 385, we've got Section 1A. As always, subregulation 1B applies if the holder of a pilot's licence also holds an operational rating or endorsement. Okay, so then we better read what 1B says, hey? 1B, the holder is authorised to exercise the privileges of his or her pilot licence in an activity in an aircraft under the rating or endorsement only if the holder is competent in operating the aircraft in the activity to the standards mentioned in Part 61 manual standards, if any, for the class or type of aircraft it belongs and the activity. So again, coming down to making sure that everything you can or can't do is as per your licenses and ratings that you hold in the aircraft categories that you hold. The final part is Section 2. Won't apply to many people. The holder of a pilot's licence is authorised to exercise the privileges of the licence in an aircraft that has an operational airborne collision avoidance system only if the holder is competent in the use of the airborne collision avoidance system as per the manual standards. Okay, so again, you can get where this is all going. If you're going to operate a piece of equipment, you've got to know how it works. This applies to all aircraft that we're going to be flying, so we can do it safely. Okay. So the next question then is, how do I meet the general competency requirement? So as I said earlier, one of my main jobs up here in Darwin, I was down in Perth as well and anywhere else where I travel around, is to assist with general competency checks or proficiency checks. What that means is a pilot is flying an aircraft for the first time and the head of operations, the former chief pilots, want to make sure that their staff are trained and familiar with the aircraft in all aspects, whatever's reasonable within the limitations of the of the aircraft and its systems. So we would go and do usually up to two flights, maybe more, before they start their line training, which is where they do supervised line training as pilot in command under supervision or ICAS. So I'd take them out and we'd do essentially an RPL flight test sort of sequence. We'd go do some general flying. Just get used to the attitude, how the aircraft holds, what the power settings are, turns, steep turns, some stalls, engine failures, some circuits, maybe an instrument approach if they're going to be flying it in an IFR capacity because everything's new, everything's different. New checklists, where to put my hands and feet, how where, where the layout is in the cockpit, where things are. Some things are back to front, not in the order that I'm used to seeing. All right, so that's what a general competency check will entail. Now, do you have to do that with an instructor? And the answer is no. 
But the answer also is, well, it kind of depends on common sense. And again, this is all feeding into the general competency requirement. How you decide to get yourself competent is essentially up to you in most cases, unless it's for an operator. And if that case, an operator will have their their process that they do, which is usually get an instructor, an examiner to do it for it, if they don't have their own internal check and training system. So what about my scenario in the beginning? You've just finished on a Cessna 172RG and you've got a friend who owns a 210 and they're offering it to you cheap. Fantastic. Great opportunity. Get some 200 series time under your belt. How can we go about getting this current outside of an instructor scenario? Well, one option is to download off the CASA website the single engine aircraft questionnaire. And in that is a bunch of questions which will take you through the normal systems, the fuel system, the electrical system, the engines, the uh, air speeds, climb speeds, power settings, all that sort of thing. And a good getting to know you, uh, dip into the aircraft's operating manual and pluck out all these figures and information so that you start to get an idea. How sophisticated is the aircraft compared to what you've flown before? Well, again, if we're going from a 172RG to a 210, there's a lot of similarities. It has the same style of uh, undercarriage system, manual gear system, all very, very similar. Fuel systems, pretty straightforward. We're really coming down to different speeds and handling requirements in the general scheme of things. All right. Yes, there are some other things, but just breaking it down. So if your friend was well rehearsed on the aircraft, you hold a single engine class rating, you flew the cutlass, so you have a manual propeller pitch control and retractable undercarriage endorsement or design feature endorsement. So you, as I keep getting told, are technically licensed to fly the aircraft. It's just this general competency requirement. So if you've done some research in the POH, you've uh, maybe watched some YouTube videos, you've talked to your friend, and maybe they offer to come up with you and give you some pointers, you could say that that is how you're going to meet the general competency requirement. What you have to be careful of is how you determine your attainment of this requirement, and it is legislation, like I said, it's a regulation, so you do need to meet it, is up to you. And it's only if something were to happen that if CASA were to question you and go, essentially, what gave you the right to fly this aircraft, if your answer isn't going to be sufficient, that's where there might be an issue. And at the moment, it's not really being tested. But that's just what you need to think about. So common sense. If this is the first time you've flown a T10, you're probably better off doing it with an instructor. The reasons for this are is because they will be, hopefully, if you've got the right instructor, familiar with the aircraft, its systems, uh, just to keep on the 210 theme. There's a whole heap of letter variants. So there's L's, there's K's, there's N's, R's. There's a, there's a whole heap. Slightly different speeds, flap uh, restrictions, gear restrictions. Some have gear doors, some don't. So the inspections before flight. Again, nothing major, but everything just adds to something possibly being missed or not being checked properly, which could lead to an issue down the line. 
So I still recommend in that scenario an instructor in those early days to get checked out and meet this general competency requirement and get some time under your belt under the safety and supervision of someone that knows what they're talking about. The risk of doing it with a friend who isn't an instructor is they're not going to be able to do some of the checks and balances that you need. They won't think of some of the things that we would think about as instructors um, to point you out. It'll generally be a everything's working fine kind of flight. So just be aware of that. All right, so 61385, general competency requirement. How else does it apply in our day-to-day flying? Well, another scenario I used is night circuits. This can be applied to day circuits, night circuits, uh, instrument approaches in the simulator, anything that you're doing to get up to speed and current. So let's just say you need to do some night circuits. You're within your 90 days uh, as far as night VFR requirements go and you take yourself out to go do some circuits to get ready for another 90 days of passenger carrying. That's obviously under private limitations. All right, don't, don't, don't shoot me. So... You go out and you do three really crappy night landings, all right? They're, they're hard, they're rough, they really weren't great. You pull off after the third one, taxi off, fill in your logbook, competency, night, three takeoffs and landings, done. Or is it? Again, this is where there's a difference between currency and competency. So are you current? Yeah, I've done my three takeoffs and landings. Were they any good? Are you competent? Are you safe? Again, if we think about that definition, the ability to do something successfully or efficiently, and I think it would be fair to say probably not, all right? Would you want to be in a passenger with somebody slamming it down into the runway? Not really, all right? So that's where we need to factor that in. Instrument approaches. I jump in the sim. I go and do three really average ILSs or VORs or RNAVs. I'm current, tick, done one hour, single pilot, three approaches, life's good. But am I competent? Remember, why are you doing these approaches in the first place? Would you be happy doing what you just did in eight-eighths of grey or even black down to minimas? Because if you're not, then I think it would be fair to say that you're not yet competent. Now, again, that statement has some connotations of its own. Once you complete a flight test, even before that, during your training, you can be found competent. You might not be very good at it thereafter, but you've always been found competent. But in the context that we're talking about here for the proficiency check, are you proficient? Are you competent? Are you good enough to do that? in real IMC conditions, in real night flying conditions, in a real emergency environment. And this feeds into flight reviews. If you hold a multi-engine class rating, you'll do either an instrument rating proficiency check or just a multi-engine proficiency check. And that allows you to fly single-engine aircraft. What are you doing to make sure that you are proficient in flying a single-engine aircraft in all its systems and equipment. For example, when was the last time you actually did a single-engine practice force landing? If you've been doing multi-engine IPCs for the last few years, 
It's probably been some time. So remember, whilst the rules allow you to also fly a single-engine aircraft, the onus is on you to comply with 61385. Okay, so that is the general competency rule. Again, 61.385. It's a really important paragraph. It is leaving you to your own devices as to how you meet that competency, the proficiency, how you keep your own safety, use common sense, and if you're not sure, flick me a message and give me a scenario and I'm only too happy to give you my two cents worth on what you should maybe consider doing. But ultimately, if it's outside a company operation, it's up to you. Multi-engine aircraft. Again, once you're multi-engine class rated, if it's under 5,700 kilos, you've got the design features, you can fly it. But technically isn't a word you can use. I can fly it as long as I meet 61.385. Again, how you choose to meet that requirement is up to you. So give it the uh, incident test. If I would have an incident, okay, things happen and that's okay. But would CASA say, yep, you, you did everything you needed to, it was just one of those things, or really you probably shouldn't have been sitting in that seat in the first place, in which case it might be tea and Mickey time. All right, so that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening again. As I said, any questions, let me know. I'd love to hear any of your feedback. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give me a review. Uh, It really helps me uh, get the word out and makes my podcast show up on the search engines as well. Remember, you can email me at info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au. Uh, pop podcast in the subject line and send me your questions. I'll do my best to answer it. Or, of course, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, Trent underscore Robinson underscore aviation. All right, all the podcasts are available at flighttrainingaustralia.com.au or on any of your favourite podcast uh, servers. All right, next week we are going to look at applying for your first job in aviation. I've... Uh, scrounged around, called up a bunch of cheap pilots around, or not sorry, got to use the current terminology, head of operations, head of flying operations and head of training and human resource managers to find out what's going on with resumes, applications, what processes they like you to use to help you land that first job. It could even be a second or third job. So any job you're applying for, make sure you tune in for that. Tell your friends, share the episodes far and wide. And until then, blue skies, and remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, and communicate. Cheers, guys. Cheers.